Okay, so Hebrews chapter 3. Um, as we dive in, I want to remind you of uh, something that came to my attention about a year ago. And maybe you'll recall. Um, about a year ago, we had torrential downpours and rains. It's one of the greatest uh, amounts of water that has fallen in North Texas uh, in a century. And uh, if you remember, the news began to report something quite often. And that was of a dam, a levee that was potentially going to give way. And you would see on the news, and there would be tractors sitting on the top this dam and there would be people all over it and they were looking to see and it was the Louisville Dam. And the Louisville Dam uh, holds about 2.5 billion tons of water back. Matter of fact, if that levee was to break, which is six and a half miles long, then not only would that water dash, but it would actually, uh, it would evade about 431,000 homes. It would make its way down the Trinity River and it would flood multiple parts of Dallas, but the main part would be heading down the Trinity River right towards downtown. Things like the Bush Turnpike, LBJ, all of those things would be affected and literally hundreds of thousands of lives would not only be displaced, but thousands of people may lose their life. Now what's interesting is, is that if you began to really look at this idea, you would hear that it was first reported that because of the torrential downpours, there's a huge problem in this levee. But after initial reports kind of broke away, people began to do some research, and they began to discover that, in fact, it wasn't a torrential downpour that was causing the problem. It was actually an erosion that had been taking place over several decades. Now, the dam was built in 1955, but the problem was is this. Instead of repairing the breach, they thought it'll be fine until some catastrophic events happen. And honestly, let me ask you a question. How long do we wait before we deal with some things in our life? Right? Like your cars broke down. You're like, hey, I'm not going to really worry about that. I'm still getting around. It's not until when it falls apart that you begin to deal with it. So what they did is they began to look at this dam and all the problems that it may cause. And then it was reported, and matter of fact, one of the Corps of Engineers said, yes, we do indeed have some struggles. And then this is quote from an article in the Dallas Morning News. The Corps tells itself about the dam is different than what it tells the public. Matter of fact, here we go, quotes. We want to get the message out there that there is a potential for something bad to happen. But we don't want to unduly panic the public. I mean, we don't want them to know that 431 homes would be wiped out. We don't want them to know that LBJ um, would be wiped out. And we don't want them to know that if the levee broke, it would bring a tsunami wave that was 65 foot tall coming at 35 miles an hour. It would wipe out every single thing in its way. Matter of fact, yes, it is true. One communication official says, Yes, we do sugarcoat the message a bit. Now, the question is, is this. Is that really the thought process of many people? You don't really want to tell the whole truth. You don't want to really look at everything. Well, as we dive into Hebrews chapter 3, here's what I need you to know. A spiritual failure is rarely an explosion and usually an erosion. Oh, that's good. Spiritual failure is rarely an explosion and usually an erosion. What that means is, is the things that you deal with in your life don't just happen because of circumstances. It's not just one big monumental thing that gave way to your life. Your marriage didn't fail overnight. 
your finances didn't just come to an abrupt halt overnight. It's been a pattern of things that you have been doing for sometimes months, years of your life. It's not spiritual failure happening in one huge explosion. It's usually an erosion. And so as we dive in today, I got to ask you the question, chapter two, have you anchored yourself in God and his purposes or are you drifting? Or in chapter one, are you stumbling on Jesus or are you standing on him? Because there's a huge difference between standing on Jesus, being anchored on Jesus, and avoiding spiritual erosion. But for so many of us in here, when things happen in our life, we look up and we oftentimes are shocked. And we would even let people around us, we would say, I don't know what happened. It would be like the Corps of Engineers in the Louisville Dam. Yes, this incredible catastrophic event has led to an erosion. No, 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 no. There's been erosion for decades, but we're just now talking about it with everyone. And so in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brothers, speaking to us. And anytime you see a therefore, which happens over and over and over again in Hebrews, you need to know what it's there for, okay? And so it causes you to look back. And in chapter 2, we know that we are Christ's brothers. And so get this, God, the Father, adopted us into his family. We are the sons and daughters of God being adopted. Israel is his legitimate son, so God calls Israel to be his sons. Yes, he adopts us as sons and daughters. So he gives us an opportunity to be grafted into the family. Now, really interesting. In Hebrew tradition, a father can disown his own son, but he cannot disown someone he's adopted. And so if God has called you his son, or if Jesus calls you my brothers, because see, we have a great elder brother. We have one who is perfect in every way. He looks after us as his kid sibling. He paves the way to the father. We've been adopted. We are his brothers. We're a part of the family of God. We cannot be disowned. You can't somehow lose your salvation. You can't fall from grace. Why? Because if you don't earn grace, you can't fall from grace. If you have no part of playing a role in salvation and learning it, earning it, then how can you lose it? So you are a part of the family of God. We share in a heavenly calling. It means that our home is not here, that it's something beyond, right? We struggle with that though, don't we? All of us men in here. Hey, baby, what are you getting me for Father's Day? Ladies, you ready? Isn't your eternal dwelling enough? There you go. Just, just use it on them, you know? And so it's us. We share in a heavenly calling and consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who is faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also faithful in all God's house. And so now the Hebrew writer, he's writing to this group of Hebrews. And one of the things that you need to know about all Hebrews is that they know exactly who Moses is. Moses is the guy who brought them out of 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt. He went to Pharaoh, said, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, hey, baby, let my people, and that's not what he said, but it was something like that, okay? And so he says, hey, let my people go, and, and Pharaoh said no, and so there was 10 different plagues that take place. Finally, after taking the firstborn son, Pharaoh goes, okay, I relent. Moses took all the people of Israel uh, out of Egypt, and they headed towards the promised land. And what Moses was faithful in God's house. He moved. He was a great prophet. He was a great instructor, although the people of Israel oftentimes did what? Didn't listen. They were rebellious. Matter of fact, verse 3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Wait a second. How did someone have more glory than Moses? I mean, 
Moses is the greatest prophet of, of all of Israel. I mean, Moses is the guy who, I mean, he brought millions out of Egyptian slavery. I mean, 400 years, how do you get better than that? And the writer of Hebrew goes, there is one better. You think Moses was fantastic, but look towards Jesus. Why? Look, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. The builder always is superior to what he builds. The creator is always superior than the what? Creation. How many more ways do I need to say that? Like, Jesus is greater. For in every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. So what was Moses there for? Moses was there to be, what? God's faithful ambassador. He was there to point the people of God, Israel, towards a heavenly father who loved them, cared for them, and did not want them to live a life of slavery and bondage, but a life of freedom and abundance. Sounds familiar to the God we serve, right? God doesn't want you to live in in your own muck and mire and your sin. He doesn't want you to live in misery. What God wants to give is a what? A faithful life, and he does it through who? Moses? No, he says a true and better Moses. He does it through one who what? Gives you life. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Moses was a great ambassador. And when the king is away, the ambassador has the voice. Understand? So get this. The ambassador has a great voice. When the king is away, he speaks. He tells people how they should go, and they go. But when the king arrives and he sits on his throne, what happens to the ambassador? He falls back. He no longer has the voice. Jesus is our great king. We are merely his ambassadors. Moses was a great ambassador. He was faithful. What was he faithful to? The people of Israel, but more specifically, to give them the message, proclaiming that the king is coming. Matter of fact, look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'm going to put it for you on the screen so you don't have to shuffle back and forth. But look what it says, starting in verse 15. It says, Moses, quote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. He's telling the people of Israel, The Lord is going to raise up a prophet from among us. From your brothers. Interesting, right? It is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, hey, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore. He says, lest I die. And the Lord said, hey, they're writing what they've spoken. So here's the request of Israel. Please, please, please don't let us see any of those crazy things anymore. Okay, so have, have they seen crazy things happen? Yes, Moses has seen what? The people of Israel led out of bondage, the Red Sea parts, m- millions of Egyptians are killed. Then from there, Moses leads them out. God speaks and gives law. He's out in the wilderness. How did God get his attention out there? He speaks through fire. How does he lead them through the wilderness? What? Pillar of cl- what? cloud and fire. And you know what the people of Israel say? Is there any way that God can just maybe speak to us without fire? Like, can we do something besides burning bushes, clouds of smoke? See, like some of us, that's our biggest problem. Like, I don't know if God exists. I need to see fire. And the people of Israel said, no, we've seen fire and we don't want to see fire anymore. And so what Moses says is this, just as one like me will be raised up 
He will come from among you, your brothers. He is a legitimate son of Israel. He will be raised up like a prophet. And then look what it says. And I will raise up, verse 18, a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them as I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require to them. What does Jesus say in John chapter 10? He says, I am the good shepherd. The sheep hear my voice. And the sheep that hear my voice, they what? Follow me. They do as I command. Then Jesus says, and you need to know that I am great and there is nothing that can snatch you out of my hand. And the Father's hand is greater than mine and there's nothing that can snatch you out of my Father's hand. And then he says, I and the Father are one. So here's the picture. The king is on the scene. Just as Moses spoke about, he has arrived. It is not an ambassador. It's not merely a voice of God. It's not some prophet of God. It is the son of God. He has all authority, all dominion, all power, all life, all things created by him, for him, or what? Here. He is the fulfillment of all things, and he has arrived on scene. Do you get that? And so just as Moses has been faithful, Jesus has been faithful. In verse 6, it picks up the idea and says, and Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. We are his house. There's the emphasis. You got it? We're not merely a, what, a temple built by human hands. Like, like, that's one of our biggest problems here in the church. Like, oh man, don't run in the church. No, no, no. We're not in the church. This is a building. We are what? The church, we are God's house. God resides in us. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18 through 20. Don't you know that you've been bought with a price and you're not your own? You and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so here's the picture. He goes, just as we have a son who is faithful over God's house, we are his house. And indeed, we should what? Hold fast. And the idea is to, to bear down, to cling on. Hold fast. Our confidence and our boasting and our hope. It's, it is. It's, it's to stand on Christ. It's, it's to anchor ourselves on him. And men, can I just ask you a question? How are you doing in that area? Are you anchoring on God and his hope? Is the supreme confidence that you have in you or in him? Because one, one of the greatest things that you and I struggle with as men is confidence in our own self. Um, hey, baby, I think you turned the wrong way. No, I didn't. I know exactly where I'm going. Ever done that? No? No. Ladies, you, you need to know that one of the greatest things that you can give your husband is confidence. Like more than a tool set, he needs to be affirmed. He needs to know that there is great worth and great value. But one of the, the unprecedented mistakes that we oftentimes make with men is that we affirm their worth and their value so much that we actually lead them to believe that they are our hope and our refuge. And you gotta really understand that the only way they can lead you well is to be led by someone well. And the way to be faithful in God's house as an ambassador is to listen to the king. Why was Moses so faithful? Why is he regarded as such a great prophet and a person of God? It's because he listened and he obeyed. He led the people well. And so he is faithful. Husbands, are, is your confidence, your boasting in you, your abilities, your talents? Man, I'll work really hard. I mean, that's some of the greatest things you say. Man, my wife better be glad she got me because there's not another man that works as hard as I do. Where are you putting your confidence? Where is your hope? 
And there's nothing wrong with working hard. There's nothing wrong with being faithful and diligent. But listen, do not put a false hope or an idea in yourself, your confidence, or boast in you. Our boasting comes in what? The builder of the house, God's faithful son, Jesus Christ. Amen? And so because of that, there is a rest for the people of God. So verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now, what's interesting is the writer of Hebrews is quoting a passage from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And he's, he's, he's actually reciting the psalmist, but the psalmist is taking this from Deuteronomy and Exodus. Now, let me tell you the picture real quick. The people of Israel are in bondage for 400 years. God sends an ambassador to get the people out of bondage and lead them to, to a new life. And that new life is going to be fulfilled in a place called Canaan or Palestine. It's the promised land is what the scripture says. It's God's great rest for the people of Israel. It's what he told Abraham about in Genesis chapter 12. He said, Abraham, if you'll follow me out of the Ur of Chaldeans, then I'll lead you to a new land. I'm going to give you land, blessing, and people. I'm going to bless those who bless, those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. You got the picture? He goes, I love you. You are going to be my legitimate sons. I'm going to care for you. But when you rebel against me, then I'm going to punish you. And so here it is. Moses goes, he gets the people out. They're cheering. I mean, can you imagine 400 years of hardship, misery, being enslaved, working harder than you should, and finally hope is arriving. God told Moses, I have heard the people's cries. I have heard their tears. I've seen their tears. I have heard all of the things going on. I'm sending you. He rescues them out. Here they go. They are heading to the promised land. They are going to see God move in mighty ways. And about a month in, they go, Moses, Moses, what were you thinking bringing us out here? Now, can you imagine being Moses? Um, excuse me? Uh, what, what are you referring to? Well, we just rem we remember all the leeks and the melons and the onions and, oh man, all those good things that we ate in Egypt. And all we got is manna. Manna, dried up, like what is this stuff? It's like a, you know what I mean? Like a rice cake, you know what I'm talking about? The only problem is there's no peanut butter to put on it, you know what I mean? And so it's like, like, God loves us, and why are we eating this stuff? And why is it every single day? Like, isn't it, if God's good, isn't there anything more creative than this stuff? I mean, what do you call this? Like, pop, like, what is that? And, of course, they become what? Stiff-necked, rebellious people. Verse 8, as in the day of the testing in the wilderness. Do you see this? God just rescued them 400 years of slavery. A month in, they're complaining about what God has done. God, really? Is this the best you've got for us? Then look, where your fathers, what? Put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. The writer of Hebrews is simply reminding the people, do you remember about the wilderness? And so here's the wilderness. They're in the wilderness, they complain. And God says, you want quail? I'll send you quail. And so guess what? All the older gener generations begin to gorge themselves on quail. And then all at once, it's like they choke on it and they die. Hold on, what? Is it really in the Bible? No, I made it up. No. This is in the Bible. 
they die. God kills off a generation of older, rebellious, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people because they did not acknowledge God's way. And so he goes, I'll raise up a new generation, and I'm going to give you 40 years to think about this. Now, why are they thinking about it? Because here's the deal. God said, I'm going to bring you out of captivity, and I'm going to take you into a place called Canaan or Palestine. It's the promised land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's got abundant grapes. And he goes, matter of fact, Moses, you want to see it? Send 12 guys. Get one from each tribe of the nation of Israel. Send them. Look over. Peek over the hills. Look in. See see what's there. And so guess what? They get 12 guys together. They all go out. They get to the door of the promised land, Kadesh Barnea. It's like a glass door. You ever seen a bird fly into a glass door? You seen that? Yes. Your dog running. Yes. You seen it? Some of y'all have done it. Yes. That's Israel. Like they come all the way up to the door of the promised land. They smack a glass door. Why? Because out of the 12, there's 10 of them. They go, Oh, no, there's giants living in the land. Oh, no, we can't take it. But look at those grapes. Man, you ever seen grapes that big? I mean, look at, look at, look at those melons. Oh, my gosh, the, the, the honey. And then they go back. And Moses goes, well, what do you think? Well, it's great. I mean, you, you should see the grapes, dude. You should, you, you should see the milk and the honey. I mean, it's an incredible land. And, and you got two guys hopping up and down. They're like, we should go, we should go. That's Joshua and Caleb. And then you got 10 guys, which you don't remember their names, and you wouldn't name your kid after them anyway. And what happened? They're like, no, we're, like, we're literally like grasshoppers in the land. Like, no, no, we can't do this. We shouldn't go. And so they talk everybody out of it. They vote Joshua and Caleb off the island, if you're a Survivor fan, you know? No, we're not doing it. They're hard-hearted. So 40 years to learn about who God was. A testing of patience because they, what, did not look towards the builder of the house. Now, ladies, I, I need you to do something for me. Y'all ready? I need you to make sure that in this next little portion that you look straight at me, okay? And the reason why is because I want to ask everybody the question about how do you know when you're stiff-necked or hard-hearted? And this is just not a good day to look at your husband, okay? Like it's Father's Day, so I, I don't want you like, Nudging, no glances up, you know, no like chuckling in your seat, you know. How do you know if you're hard-hearted? Well, I started thinking about it. Like, how do you know, like, when I'm, when I'm stiff-necked, like what Hebrews is talking about, this unknown writer, like, when do I know? Well, here's, here's what I know. When, when you're not capable of being wrong, like if you, you, in your mind, you're not even able to ask the question, am I capable of being wrong? You might be hard-hearted, okay? I know men, you don't struggle with that. But And ladies, you don't ever, you never struggle with that either, right? But you're not capable of being wrong. Here's another thing. You know you're getting hard-hearted or stiff-necked when you complain often. When everything you seem to do is grumbling and complaining. They're doing what? They're taking up a building in Israel. No, no, just kidding. <clears throat> that, that might be us, okay? Um, we lack humility. We, we, don't, we don't ooze grace. We, we're... We lack humility. Um, problems are rarely ever our fault. We always blame shift. It's always someone else's fault. They did that. If, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be this way. Um, we struggle mightily with forgiveness. We'll say that we'll forgive you, but we really won't. Like we, we kind of have a Rolodex and it's a mile, well, two, well, probably 10 miles long and you just keep bringing it up. You know you're hard-hearted or stiff-necked when you struggle with that. 
you know you're hard-hearted or stiff-necked when you would rather talk about someone than to someone. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges in our culture, particularly in our communities, Edgewood, Wills Point, Canton. Instead of going to the person that might have wronged you, we, we try to get three, four, five people on board with us. It's amazing how many times, instead of addressing it one-on-one, Matthew 18, we'll bring several people in. And when that happens, that, that's just a picture of your own heart and rebellion against God. And here's the other thing is kind of like Acts chapter 7 when Stephen started talking to these same type of people. um, Instead of what? Listening to what they have to say, you just stone them. (laughs) Just get out of my way, you know? That's when you know that you might be hard-hearted. Now, wives, you did good, okay? You did good. Men, ladies, ask yourself, am I capable of being wrong? Am I prideful? Am I arrogant? Is there humility? Is it always someone else's fault? Good questions to ask. Why? Because spiritual failure is rarely an explosion and it's usually an erosion. It happens when just some little symptoms like this begin to crop up in our life. It it, it happens when we begin to unplug a bit. And so look at verse 10. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. God says, I was provoked that generation was going to die in the wilderness because of their disobedience, because of their lack of humility, because of their lack of faith, because they're grumbling, because of their complaining, because it was always someone else's fault. Moses, why did you get us here? What have you done? Because of all of that, God says, I'm going to deal with them harshly. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that word rest there, literally speaking of a physical place. They shall not enter my rest. And we read that, In Hebrews, and we think, oh, like that must mean heaven. Well, in this context, what he's quoting, it means the promised land. It means they hit the door of Kadesh Barnea and they will not enter the promised land. They will not enjoy a land flowing with milk and honey. They won't enjoy grapes. They will not overcome the giants. They are going to struggle and suffer for 40 years in the wilderness. It's going to be a brutal, painful experience, and it's going to be more and more and more manna, which, guess what, is enough. It's enough. But it's not what they wanted. It wasn't the fulfillment they were looking for. And so verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any evil among you, an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And here's what he says. He goes, be careful not to drift away. Be careful not to look like who? Them. Who? Your forefathers, the people of old. Now catch this. Crazy awesome. The writer of Hebrews is writing just prior to 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus' life, death, resurrection. How long did they struggle in the wilderness? Hold on, hold on. It's confusing, right? How long did they struggle in the wilderness? 40 years. Now he's writing, this unknown author, to a group of Hebrews who's struggling. Do we put our trust in Jesus? Is he really enough? Is he greater than the angels? Is he greater than Moses? Or he just some mortal man? Did he really forgive sins? Did he really give us new life? I mean, did he really die? Did he really resurrect? I mean, come on. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, yes! You've had 40 years! 40 years to look at this. You've seen, you've heard about his death, his burial, his resurrection. He appeared to many. You've seen the church flourish. You've had 40 years to think about it. And if you're not careful, you won't enter his rest. 80, 
70, Nero persecutes the church, the temple's destroyed, the city goes up in flames, he blames Christians, they scatter. Get this, from that day on, they have never had what? Sacrifice, again, as a means of worship in the Jewish culture. Why not? Because God says, I'm gonna give you 40 years to contemplate such things, and then I'm gonna wipe out all your system, and you will know without a shadow of a doubt that there is no sacrificing. You will no longer need a high priest because you have the great high priest in Jesus. The sacrifice has been fulfilled. It is complete, and he is the one, the Lamb of God, perfect in all ways, slain on your behalf. And get this, you will not sacrifice anymore ever again Why? Because the great sacrifice has arrived. He's fulfilled all things. And so you may ask yourself, so you're telling me the Jews don't sacrifice anymore? No. And you know why? Because they don't have a temple. No, bigger. Because God's not going to let them worship something that's not true. Jesus has fulfilled it all, and he says, you need to make sure you pay attention. Do not drift. Do not allow an erosion of your heart. Look to the king as an ambassador. You have a small voice, a token, but as the king lives in your heart, you need to make sure that you're following back. Got it? Get it? Simple? Yes? Yeah? Yeah? All right, little grunt, man. Yeah! Yeah! So here it is. Let me kind of wrap this up. I went to college. I was 18. I grew up in a Christian home. Everybody would have looked at my life and say, oh, man, he's got a little life. I mean, I had a curfew like at 9 o'clock, you know. I mean, I had to go to bed at 8.30 on weeknights, right? I mean, that's what you thought. Like a little Christian boy. I go to college, and what's ironic is I, I end up in a dorm room full of dudes like from Houston, and they're like H-Town. I'm like, oh, okay, awesome. I'm from like... WP or something like, yeah, I'm like, yeah. And like, I didn't even understand it, like this culture. My roommate, get this, is a Jew of all people. He's a Jew. Christian boy, Jew. I read my Bible, and he's like, why do you read your Bible? I'm like, aren't you a Jew? He looked at my life and wondered, why am I praying? And again, I'm like, aren't you a Jew? And he was a Jew when it came to Yom Kippur or Hanukkah. And what that really meant is in the morning, he would get up, and before he went to class, he'd make a call or two, and he would call a few friends, and he'd go, Happy Hanukkah! And I was like, so is that all y'all do? Yeah, that's, I, mean, I, I, don't, I mean, I'm not really a practicing Jew. I mean, you know, we don't really, I mean, I'm not really, I'm like, well, what are you? Well, get this, the more I was around him, the more I was around that culture, the more I really began to kind of drift myself. Like I began to do things that I wouldn't normally do. Like I I was kind of protected a little bit, sheltered. I mean, I was around church people because of our schedule, or at least an excuse, a stiff-necked, hard-hearted person would do with what blame shift, make an excuse because of our football schedule, because of our traveling, because of all the practice. I couldn't really get connected to a church. I mean, and don't get me wrong, I wasn't going to go to one of those little, you know, campus fellowships where those little nerdy Christians got together. And it's not me, right? So I'm not going to do that. And so guess what? I, I disconnected from God and his people, from prayer. Before too long, that the Jew over here had talked me out of reading my Bible. My language began to change. The people hanging around, the decisions were, I, I began to look much more like what? Everybody else in the world. I had drifted and what's interesting is, is I get about six months in, it's about January of that year, and uh, I get a phone call from my pastor at home. 
He's like, hey, uh, how are things going? I'm like, ah, I mean, they're great. They're great. You know, okay, awesome. Hey, you mind if I come and take you to lunch? I'm like, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, no, that'd be great. That'd be great, right? So I give in, and he comes. He drives 45 minutes to take me to lunch. He takes me to Brahms. I remember sitting there. And I knew what the meeting was about. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's like an awkward meeting, like with the pastor, and I know what it's really about, yeah? And he, he, he nudged me gently, but more than anything, he, he asked me some questions. And it was a turning point in my life. And here's why. Because he wanted me to know that, Brandon, if Jesus is your chief cornerstone, and as Peter says, you've become a living stone, then he said, you, you can't merely continue this course. He said, man, there is an erosion taking place. And to this day, I'm pretty sure that my parents called him and put him up to it. I'm not sure. I can't prove it. But the bottom line is everybody who knew me, they knew I was drifting. They knew I was altering course. They knew that my heart was being hardened, that I was becoming stiff-necked and rebellious. And so I want you to know that it happens, and oftentimes it's a slow fade, as Casting Crowns would say. It's an erosion. It's not just one day everything blew up in my face. No, it's time after time after time, decision after decision. And so the question is, what do we do about it? If there's an erosion, if we're drifting, or if we're stumbling on Jesus, how, how, do we, how do we fix that? Where do we move? Well, here's the awesome thing is the writer of Hebrews tells you. Here's what he says. Play on words. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. So he goes, hey, today don't harden your hearts. He goes, as long as it's called today, you can do one or two things. You can harden your hearts, you can drift away, or you can erode, or you can build your foundation on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. You can cast out that anchor. It's your choice. One is difficult and one's easy. Which one's easy? It's easier to drift and it's easier to erode. It's a lot harder to go repair a breach. It's a lot harder to focus the time and attention that your marriage or your family or your finances need. It's a lot easier to get lazy. It's a lot easier to drift and sit in a tube and walk your way down the beach than it is to anchor yourself. And so he says, exhort one another as long as it's called today so that none of you, what? Would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He goes, so that you don't lose, what? Who you are in Christ. And then he says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold fast to our confidence firm to the what? And as it is said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. You see what he said? First Peter, Peter writes it this way. He says, stay sober-minded and alert. Why? Because the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Look, he wants to devour you. You know how he devours you? Do you know how he attacks us when he gets you isolated? When he gets you confused? And when you're not sober-minded and alert? Listen. The reason that you need authentic community is not so that we can check a roll around here. The reason you need authentic community is so that you don't drift away. And if there is not someone encouraging you to stay fixed on the anchor of your salvation, then guess what? You'll drift away. If it wasn't for that phone call and that lunch at Brahms, there's no telling where I would be today. Like it is that big of a lunch. You need to know that if there wasn't someone who called me, regardless of the decision that I made when I was 17 to go into ministry, I could have drifted, 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 and I wouldn't be pastoring people today. He called me back. He said, Brandon, where is the hope you have? Where are you going to put your anchor? And so that's my call to you. Are you hardening your hearts? Are you drifting? 
Are you allowing an erosion to take place? And then verse 16, he finishes, he says, for those who heard and yet rebelled, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Like who, who was God provoked in with his anger? Wasn't, was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? He goes, it was the ones who grumbled and complained. It was the stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. That's what happened. And whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest but those who were disobedient? So we, what, see that they were unable to enter this place because of unbelief. Now look, he flips it. Get this, you ready? And I'm gonna close right here. The people of Israel did not enter a rest, the promised land. He says, it's much more severe for you. When you don't put your faith in Jesus, you don't enter into the rest. And that word changes. And it's not merely speaking of a rest, like a place and time, Canaan. It's speaking of an eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Meaning, you want a heavenly dwelling. You want somewhere to be for all the ages to come. He goes, you are not going to enter into that rest without Jesus. Do you see it? He goes, the old times, the, the people of old, they wanted grapes and honey, a place flowing with milk. But he goes, now... We should want an eternal dwelling, a heavenly home provided for us in Jesus the Son. Don't turn back. Don't erode. A spiritual failure is rarely an explosion and usually an erosion. It is a drifting from the one we call our eternal hope. His name is Jesus. He's the builder of the house. He is the vine and we are the branches. He is the bridegroom and we are his bride. He is the head of the body and we are the members of his church. He is the king and we are his ambassadors. His name is Jesus. Hold fast. Men, ladies, would you do an honest assessment and say, am I holding fast? I mean, honestly, how committed are you to the people of God, the word of God, the prayer of God. How much work is the Spirit doing in your life? If it's not happening, then you need to go, wow, hey, it's been breached and I need some repair. You call upon God, you ask, seek his forgiveness, and then guess what? You call the people of God and you say, hey, I need to get some people around me. It's time to put some sandbags in the breach. That's what happened. The Louisville Dam, they found the sand boils and they began to stuff bags in it. And it created a suction, and that's the only reason that dam did not give way last spring. They did something about it. What's God calling you to do? Happy Father's Day. May I pray for us? God, we love you, and we thank you for your word. I pray, God, you would help us to hold fast. God, help us to know that we can be stiff-necked, hard-hearted, rebellious people, wandering aimlessly, questioning you and everyone else. Or we can look to you as the author and the perfecter of our faith the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, Jesus, the King of all. And we can put our faith in you, our confidence in you. We can bear down and we can walk through this life with other people or we can try to do it isolated, confused, and alone. And that's not what you created for us as the church. And so I prayed that we'd know that and hold to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all check this out.